It's time now for the complete story, a public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now here's the BRN father and son team, Dick and Rich Bot, with today's complete story. You know, Rich, I was reflecting this morning as I was getting up. I was reflecting over the many, many years, actually 50, this is our 57th, 58th year now of Bot Radio Network, and I was reflecting what our purpose was going all the way back to the beginning, and it was to help people. It was to help people. It was to serve the Lord by serving his people, and that's that's what it was based on. Is to help people grow in their faith with quality Bible teaching, Christian news and information. Well, Christian news and information. You see, that's what we're going to be getting into today. And then I remember when that young man, Dr. James Dobson, started Focus on the Family. That was a brand new program. And who was he and where did all that come from? And it was the Focus on the Family program over the years that has been so important to our audience to help them with the issues of life, raising children, keeping their marriages together, and really serving the Lord in in so doing. And today, today, this complete story broadcast is to allow the teamwork between Bot Radio Network and Focus on the Family once again to come together. Uh, Dr. Francis Collins is being interviewed uh, by Jim Daly of Focus on the Family, and it is as absolutely uh, relevant to this moment as anything could be. Right. This just aired on the Focus on the Family program last Thursday. We wanted to repeat it so people could have a chance to hear this information. All right. Listen now, our Christian Bible faith-believing audience, listen to this. Dr. Collins, welcome to Focus on the Family. It's great to be with you, Jim. I so appreciate it. I know. I can't imagine how busy you and your team are uh, throughout the uh, medical field right now. Give me a picture of what that landscape looks like. Well, it's 24-7 for anybody who's trying to help out with this unprecedented crisis, this pandemic uh, of coronavirus. And since we are the largest supporter of biomedical research in the world, uh, we are full out in everything we can do to speed up the process of identifying possible treatments for people who do get infected, as well as moving this vaccine forward as fast as we can. And we've already outstripped every previous timetable by getting the phase one trial started uh, this past Monday. But we have many more steps ahead of us, so that vaccine won't be ready for at least a year. We want to be sure nothing goes wrong along the way. We're going to need it probably a year from now or a year and a half from now. In addition to that, of course, there are all these other supportive things that NIH needs to do in terms of both basic science and clinical science, but we are also worried about our staff. And so we've sent almost everybody home to work remotely, except for the people involved in patient care. And we do run the largest research hospital in the world, so there's a lot of patient care issues here. And we, of course, are concerned about our patients, many of whom are very vulnerable and immunosuppressed. Uh, We have to be sure that they're kept safe uh, from coronavirus. So, yeah, we're running around a lot. Right. And it's a good reminder for all of us to be praying for you and for the NIH and CDC and all those professionals. I mean, that's something the focused listeners will certainly do, I trust. So I really uh, would appreciate that. Good reminder. Let's specifically get to the virus itself. I mean, we're watching the news. Um, There's real consistency, which is good. But can you, right from 
the top at NIH. Can you give us some context of what we're facing with this virus? How serious of a problem is it? I know some people were kind of discounting it, thinking like this is just a little more than the flu maybe. Help shore that up for us medically. It's very serious. Uh, I wish I could say otherwise, but this is a virus that spreads extremely quickly. Uh, It is so transmissible, even by people who have no symptoms, but who've gotten exposed and are carrying it around. They may develop symptoms a couple days later, but they may be already spreading it. And certainly the way in which that travels then means that our entire country is at risk, uh, as were earlier people in China, uh, for catching this. And it is a more serious disease than the flu, just in terms of its consequences. It is a respiratory illness. It gets to the lungs, and that is the greatest source of concern, and particularly for older people or people with chronic diseases, it can be very serious and can be fatal. We estimate right now without really good numbers uh, that the mortality rate uh, from this particular virus is probably in the neighborhood of 1% or 2%, and that is 10 times higher than influenza. So you can quickly see why we're taking this so seriously. If this is a virus for which none of us have immunity because it's brand new and it spreads through the whole population, so maybe 30 or 40 percent of Americans will get it. And it has a mortality that high. We are facing something we have not seen in my lifetime, reminiscent more of the very frightening things that happened back in 1918 with that influenza flu epidemic. Now, having said all that, there are ways that we can lessen the consequences of this, and that's why this is being taken by the president and everybody else with the greatest seriousness and asking people to do things that normally you wouldn't even consider, uh, like basically sequestering yourself at home and avoiding interactions with other people where the virus might be spread. Yeah, and hopefully uh, many are doing that. Certainly here at Focus, we've done what you've done, and that's uh, to put as many people Uh, at home to work from home that can. So we are on a minimal uh, staff level here, but we still have our phones open. Our response uh, team is uh, working from home. So the phone lines are open. They can do that in the, uh, the comfort and the uh, health safety of, safety their, home. of yeah. their homes. Thanks, John. Uh, Dr. Collins, let me ask you this too. Um, I have seen on YouTube, there's the one woman and this, this is what creates, I think some, I think, misunderstanding about the severity of this. Uh, She was a healthy, probably 35-year-old, fairly young, and she said her symptoms were very light. It was confirmed through a test that she had had uh, COVID-19, but that it was like a light cold to her. She didn't suffer many consequences, and she was encouraging people, which I think is great, to calm down, don't overbuy at the grocery store. And and I just want to reemphasize that. The way it presents really depends on your physical makeup, your age, your... Mm -hmm. Uh, compromised situation. Speak to that a little bit more thoroughly about what she was experiencing. And her situation might be fairly typical for a relatively young, healthy person. And that's part of the reason I think people are having trouble getting their minds around why this is so serious. If you're young, uh, in your 20s or 30s, and you have no chronic illnesses, uh, you could get this disease and have a fairly mild course of it. But think about all the other people around you, and particularly people as they get older, where the susceptibility goes up. Estimates are from China that people in their 80s who got infected with coronavirus the death rate was about 23%. I mean, incredibly high number. So it goes up very steeply. This is a really important point, Jim. If we were all just thinking about ourselves, 
then all the young people would probably be out carousing and having a great time because if they get coronavirus, ah, oh, what the heck, I might be sick for a few days. Right. But then they're getting it and they're spreading it, uh, oftentimes even before they know they have it. And then we have our whole country infected, including all those vulnerable people. This is a great moment for Christians to be in this space of recognizing that we have a responsibility for those uh, who particularly need that support, uh, for those who are most vulnerable. In this case, it's people with other medical issues or the elderly, it's up to us to help protect them by not catching this disease ourselves and spreading it all around. Well, it's That's well, really important. So that woman on yeah. the video, she was fine, but if she bumped into a grandparent, uh, they might not be. Yeah, exactly right. And we're going to talk a little later about some of the things we can do as the Christian community and get your input there. Um, a question that came to me, which I think is a valid one, uh, what about catching this twice? Can Like this woman, could she have a recurrence and be re-exposed, or is it something that once you have it, your body's immunity system's built up and you won't catch it again? Yeah, the data we have indicates that you don't get this over again, at least not with this particular coronavirus that's circulating right now, that the immunity that you generate is protective. And of course, we're counting on that because that's how a vaccine works. It's generating that immunity without right. having you get the disease. There are a few anecdotes of people who maybe sound as if they got a recurrence, but I'm not sure that I believe those entirely. Some of those may be people who weren't actually quite over it and then had a bit of a relapse. I think we right now have the best evidence to say you get this once and you're done. Yes. You know, some of us have heard in the news about the trial that's begun, I think, again, up somewhere in Washington. Describe that yes. uh, from a doctor's perspective for us. Describe how long that can take. What are they looking for? When, right. if it goes successfully, how long could it be before we see a vaccine for those uh, to protect us? Well, this is an unusually rapid pace, the fastest ever, in fact, in the history of humankind, to have patients who are volunteers now being injected with this trial vaccine uh, just about two months after when we first knew there was a virus and knew what its uh, instruction book, its, its RNA sequence looked like. So it's using a very rapid approach, a collaboration between NIH and a company called Moderna, basically injecting the vaccine into muscle and waiting for the muscle to see what it is and make the proteins that the immune system will recognize. But this is not a dangerous vaccine. It's not actually injecting the coronavirus. It's injecting one little part of its protein coat, uh, which can't do anything on its own. And that sounds really promising, like, oh, wow, you must be always almost there. Well, it doesn't work that way. We have to figure out whether this does, in fact, raise antibodies that you would predict would be protective. And you have to make sure it's safe, that it doesn't have some surprising other effect. If that goes well, and it'll take uh, several more weeks to see whether these volunteers in Washington state uh, have the results that we hope, then you've got to scale it up uh, to a phase two trial, which would be hundreds or maybe a thousand patients, and try to show whether it actually is protective. And that will certainly run through the summer and early fall. If that all goes well, then you have to phase three it, which is an even larger study, and find a pharmaceutical company that's ready to scale it up. Because if it works, we may need across the globe hundreds of millions of doses of this. Right. So to be realistic, uh, Tony Fauci, who you've probably been seeing on every news program that exactly. you, uh, turned on, who, who uh, works at NIH, he is my expert in infectious disease, and he's probably the most well-respected and knowledgeable infectious disease expert in the world. Uh, he is saying it's going to take a year to a year and a half.
half. So don't count on the vaccine being ready before that. We have to certainly implement all these other measures in the meantime if we're going to try to protect those vulnerable people. Right. And 12 to 18 months, as you said, will still be the fastest deployment of a vaccine that uh, we've ever accomplished, correct? Oh, yeah. By by a factor of three, at least. Normally, these things take four or five years. Well, again, another great prayer point for our listeners to to pray about and and give clarity to the scientists working on this. I should have asked this before, but what what are those symptoms that we should be looking for with ourselves, our kids, maybe our parents? The symptoms are generally fever and cough and shortness of breath. Some people get sore throat, some people don't. I know what people are thinking hearing this. It sounds like just the regular winter cold, and it kind of is like that, which is one of the reasons it's a little hard to figure out who's really needing a test and ought to be taken seriously because there's lots of other colds and flu around. So at the moment, it's kind of those symptoms. Some people get a little bit of stomach trouble, but not so much. It's really a respiratory disease. Well, I have a friend who has allergies, as an example, and mm-hmm. she and her husband were talking about it. They called their doctor. The doctor said, we think you're okay. There's no need to come in for a test. How do we, mm-hmm. at this level, where we don't have a, uh, a doctor's degree, <laughs> how do we determine that? <laughs> what insight would you give us? How, how, when should we get concerned? Yeah, I think you contact your physician and explain what your symptoms are. They now have the instructions from the CDC about really what should trigger uh, the need for taking this uh, to the next level, which is to seek out and get a test done. And I think docs can be pretty well trusted to interpret those now. CDC has been very good in educating all of the healthcare providers about coronavirus. Uh, we have all those same questions here. I have 40,000 people who work for me at NIH almost every day. We have a debate about somebody who's at home and has a little bit of a cold and should they actually get tested and we kind of go through those same discussions uh, ultimately trying to make a decision and of course the easier it is to get the testing done and that's going to get a lot more available here in the coming days uh, the more you can afford to say oh yeah just do the test as opposed to trying to limit the test to the people that have the highest risk which is what we've had to do so far. Right. And so be patient is what I'm hearing from you. It's coming soon and people can probably do that drive-through testing that many states are beginning to set up, right? That's what you can watch for coming in the next uh, few days or a week where more and more of these drive-through operations will be set up where you have to first, of course, get online and let uh, people know what your symptoms are and get an approval because they don't want people just lining up for miles uh, when they aren't really appropriate for the test. But then if it looks as if the symptoms uh, do fit, uh, then you come through the drive-through, you simply roll down your window, uh, somebody who's dressed up in protective garb uh, gets a swab from your nose uh, and sends it off to the lab. You go home and wait for the results, uh, quarantining yourself at the time. If you were sick enough to have a test, you shouldn't be around other people. Right. Let me ask you this, a practical question. I have two boys, Gene and I, of course. We have one as a junior in high school. The other is a freshman in college. I believe he's going to come back now. He doesn't want to be in the uh, the dorm setting or the apartment setting mm-hmm. he's in. Mm-hmm. What if someone in our home gets sick? Uh, should we uh, kind of count it a fait accompli that all of us will most likely get it and just live with it? Or what are some things we can do uh, within the home if somebody yes. becomes ill in the family? If somebody in your home is ill and gets the test and it's positive and it's not the flu and it's not a cold, it really is coronavirus, then everybody in the home should consider themselves as having been exposed and should quarantine themselves for the next 14 days to see if they develop symptoms. If you don't develop symptoms in 14 days, and by that the time the person in the home presumably has gotten better, then you may have escaped it. But during that two-week period, um, again, nobody in the home should be out circulating because even if you feel okay, 
okay. Uh, you may already be infected and might be sharing that virus with people in your vicinity. I know that sounds uh, pretty challenging to try to cope with, but of course, a lot of people in some parts of the country are already kind of restricted to their home, even without somebody who's been diagnosed. Uh, if you lived in the Bay Area, for instance, that's what you're required to do. Those sound like extremely uh, draconian measures. But when you think about the fact that if we don't do something, we might see a million to a million and a half people in the United States die of this disease, nothing seems very draconian. I think if people tell you that, oh, these measures are overdoing it, just think of the consequences. And I think we need to be overdoing it considering what might happen otherwise. Yeah. Let me, I mean, you're you're kind of at the top of the pyramid when it comes to fighting the disease, et cetera, working with 40,000 within NIH to combat this, et cetera. Let me bring it down to the grassroots level. My sister works for a large grocery store chain. She's a manager at one of these stores, and she said the people are just panicking. She had a woman just the other day come into the store. They wanted to buy $3,000 worth of beef, basically oh wipe out the entire beef department of this grocery store. <laughs> wow. And you know, thankfully, they said, no, 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 we don't need to do that. You can certainly buy an allotment, but we're not going to wipe out our meat department for you. And then, of course, we had the paper run, the toilet paper run, the, you know, the whole thing, dairy products, et cetera. She said it's just on the edge of crazy. And what would you suggest to people who are overreacting perhaps in that way? If we just reacted normally to our shopping requirements, the supply chain, I think, would be fine. It would help. I understand people are getting pretty anxious about what's going to happen and will they be basically locked in their homes for weeks at a time. Um, that's not going to happen. There will be an opportunity, no matter what kind of measures are put in place, for people to go out occasionally to get supplies, medicines and groceries. Um, it will, of course, be a good idea not to do that every day if you don't have to. So I'd strongly right. support the idea that families should be uh, making their plans for going to the grocery store efficiently. So maybe you're just going once a week and then you're fine for the rest of that week because you are trying to avoid uh, interactions in, so, in uh, any kind of social gathering or in a store. We're very much about this idea of social distancing, and that means staying out of busy places. But the idea of you know buying $3,000 worth of beef so that nobody else can have any, that doesn't seem very right. good either in terms right. of the generous spirit we hope people will have. Exactly. So yes, be rational, be thoughtful. Yeah, do, do a buy once a week, but not once a year. Uh, Dr. Collins, my wife's uh, mother is in a care facility, and um, mm. we're very much missing the daily visits we had with her. Yeah. Um, what can we do in, in that kind of a circumstance? My wife was saying, well, how do we know the staff doesn't have this and is going to transmit it? Uh, it's a very difficult situation emotionally for a lot of people. It is. I'm glad you brought it up. It's one of the wrenching aspects of what is a wrenching situation. And, of course, we all saw what happened at that life care facility in Washington state uh, where coronavirus just ran through uh, that assisted living uh, nursing home uh, with uh, terrible consequences. Uh, that's where a significant fraction of the deaths in our whole country happened in that one facility. Mm -hmm. That was a bit before people really recognized the risk. Now that they know that, you have to agree that it's a good idea for people who are that vulnerable not to have a lot of visitors coming in, so they've had to pretty much stop that. The responsible places, and I hope your family is in such a place, have been very careful about staff and anybody on the staff who has even the tiniest hint of a symptom uh, should stay home and get tested. I know people are sometimes going to visit by 
you know, standing at the window and <laughs> talking to each other so you can at least see each other through the glass and maybe talking on a phone. Some of my friends have been doing that so that you haven't completely broken the connection with your loved one. But a time like this, uh, just for their safety, I think this is the right decision that many of those facilities have made, and I would support them. Yeah, and I appreciate that compassion. And I'm so grateful that the Lord has put you in a place of leadership and your experience. Let me kind of turn the corner in that direction because, mm. um, you know, in my friendship with you, I've always been so impressed that you're, you know, you're at the top of the game and, and yet you have a faith in Christ. And it's so reassuring to us as Christians that you are there. Uh, I guess the best question is, as Christians, as believers, um, how should we respond uh, to the fear and the challenges that this disease creates? What's your recommendation, both as a Christian and a medical professional? Well, it is hard for people not to be fearful when this kind of information is being shared, including some of the things I've just been saying. But we as Christians uh, don't have a, a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-discipline, quoting Second Timothy. Um, somebody who's a wonderful friend of mine uh, sent me this morning a verse from Joshua that I know, but I hadn't thought about in this circumstance, Joshua uh, chapter 1, verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Even in the face of coronavirus, I claim that as truth. So we are called to be strong and courageous. We are also called to be people of generosity and of willingness uh, to put ourselves out there to try to help others. And we are called to do that in a very special way in this circumstance. And I hope people listening to this will be encouraged by that and also feel that it is a moment here uh, for us as Christians to be particularly willing uh, to be flexible, uh, to be generous, to be loving, uh, to try to help in every way we can. Absolutely. And Dr. Collins, I think this is a good spot to ask this question. Uh, many people can see science and religion as irreconcilable today. It's unfortunate that that's true because so many of the great early scientists uh, rooted themselves in faith, uh, kind of discovering God's creation rather than competing with it. You've had to go through that struggle, um, and you have evolved over time in that way. Uh, you believe they're mutually enriching, I think, and complementary. Explain that. Absolutely. And um, people might assume, uh, as I'm a person of faith, that that's something I grew up with. It's not the case. I was an atheist in graduate school studying physical chemistry. And when I went to medical school and had to face the reality of life and death, realized that I hadn't really thought that through. And through a bunch of struggles uh, trying to support my atheism, <laughs> ultimately with a lot of help from C.S. Lewis, ended up becoming a believer and a Christian. And I've never found a conflict between what I know as a scientist and what I know from reading the Bible. They are two different ways of perceiving God's truth. Uh, people talk about this uh, based on the words of Francis Bacon about they had the two books, uh, the book of God's words, the Bible, and the book of God's works, uh, which is nature. And how could they be in conflict if they're both created by God? I've not found that conflict. I've found plenty of places where we humans have created one by our interpretations either of a scientific finding or of a particular verse of Scripture that somebody decides has to have only a single meaning, even though uh, there might be reasons to interpret it in various ways. And I think science is a wonderful way of investigating this awesome creation that God has given us. And science can be thought of not just as curiosity, although it is, and not just a detective story, although it is, and not just as a way of learning about things that can help people, but also as a form of worship. Mm. That is so good. You know, at the end here, uh, Dr. Collins, can I ask you to pray for our nation? Uh, would that be okay? I would be happy to. 
Dear God, we are at a time in our country of considerable stress and concern, and a threat is very much all around us with this unexpected infection. And we have, in our own strength, not enough resources to know exactly what to do. And yet we do have understanding enough that there are things that we collectively can do to try to reduce the amount of pain and suffering and death that may otherwise happen. Please fill our minds uh, with the kind of wisdom and insight that we need, because we're often lacking in that in our own works. Please help us, though, to be free of a sense of paralyzing fear, but rather to be energized and empowered and to be strong and courageous and to seek out a path forward here so that we can not just feel like the clouds have closed in, but also see a break in those clouds, a, a time in the future where we can come through this with a sense that we have done what we were called to and that you have been right beside us all the time. That part we know. We give you thanks for that. Bless our nation. Bless all those who put themselves in harm's way to try to care for the sick and help us to be brought together somehow by this whole thing, because goodness knows this country needs more of that, too. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. All right. Here's the voice, folks. Here's the voice, dear friends, of George Younce, one of the old-timers who is now home to be with the Lord. I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day. We want to thank Jim Daly at Focus on the Family for that interview broadcast. Give the phone number. Ask our family to call and let us know what they like, what they don't like. Our listener comment line is 1-800-345-2621. We'd love to hear from you. 1-800-345-2621. Stay strong, stay healthy, and stay in the fight. All right. This is Dick Bott with my son, Rich, with another chapter of The Complete Story as a public service for you folks. We'll see you later. We'll be right back. 